0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines.
1: Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you all for tuning in. Today, I have a really interesting and current topic to speak about, which is about this whole subject of um, anti-Asian demonstrations, uh, anti-Asian actions in Canada and the U.S. Um, And uh, we all have been following the headlines recently, where um, uh, since the coronavirus began, uh, certainly, um, anti-Asian prejudice has been much stronger than it was. People are being harassed on the street, they're being attacked, they're being told to go back to China. They're, they're being pushed and shoved and even killed. Um, and these incidents, of course, have happened in, mostly in the States, but also in Canada as well. Um, you know, the, the, the innate prejudice is there but the arrival of COVID and the words of President, uh, ex-President Trump certainly um, did something to aggravate the situation. And for the first time, I think, um, you know, in both countries, Asians who normally don't see themselves as a shared group uh, are beginning to understand that because of their, uh, their common physical features, that they share something in common in the eyes of the rest of the community, uh, and that they have to act together collectively to defend themselves, to defend their rights, and to um, basically um, educate people and the media about their situation, which uh, in some cases has been very, um, uh, you know, very bad and very uh, threatened. Um, Obviously, the large countries in Asia who have provided immigrants to Canada and the U.S., like China, uh, Taiwan, um, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, uh, also India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. These people are completely different from each other. Their countries have often fought with each other. Uh, They don't have much in common with each other. Uh, They see each other differently. Once they arrive in a new uh, continent, they're somehow lumped together by the majority population. And, uh, you know, uh, they're they're made to suffer collectively uh, for um, something that is not their fault. So I thought it would be interesting to have a look at the the history of anti-Asian prejudice in Canada and in the United States. And I thought to go, uh, uh, one way to present this is to go through it to, to look at the salient points uh, kind of in chronological order and uh, to point out that the anti-Asian prejudice was not a passing phenomenon. It was not a response to a particular event uh, like the COVID uh, crisis, um, that it has been in North America for as long as Asian people have been in North America. So that's by, by and large the um the uh, the presentation, and we'll see how it goes. I have a lot of material. We'll see how far we get. Maybe we'll start with Canada and uh, say that the first Asians who came to Canada were Chinese people who uh, immigrated from China uh, to Canada at the uh, beginning of the gold rush, uh, which was in the mid-1800s. Um, and uh, Chinese people also arrived from the. US into Canada during this time. Uh, they worked in stores, they worked in cafes and laundries, They worked in farming. They worked in the railway. Uh, the builders of the CPR railway, which was completed in 1885, uh, many of them were Chinese. They worked the, uh, you know, the heaviest, worst jobs in a way. Um, there uh, at that time, uh, you know, people could come to Canada freely without any real control. Um, and, um, but very quickly there began to be prejudice against the Chinese community, um, simply because they were so different from the rest of the population in their, uh, you know, in every way, in their look, in their language and their dress and everything else. Um, And uh, the, uh, we'll call them the uh, Canadian society was not slow to enact laws against them. So in 1872, Chinese were banned from voting in British Columbia. Uh, In 1895, Japanese were banned from voting in British Columbia. And in 1908, South Asians were banned from voting in British Columbia. I mean, imagine these people were classified according to their ethnic origin, and uh, accordingly, not allowed to vote. Um, In 1885, Canada passed the Chinese Immigration Act, uh, which um, uh, put on a head tax, uh, which started at $50 and ended up at $500 for every um, man who wanted to immigrate into Canada. In other words, they said, well, we don't want people who are poor to come to the country. We don't want people who are going to be um, uh, public charges. And $500 in those days was two years pay. So you could could almost say it was the equivalent of around $100,000, which people paid, borrowed the money, and paid it off over years and years and years. So even after this head tax was imposed, 97,000 Chinese came to Canada over the years. The head tax was in in effect um, from, uh, it it finished in 1920, I'm gonna check it, but I I think it finished in 1923, Um, uh, right? In 1885, the Chinese people were banned from voting in federal elections and in 1920, believe it or not, this, this ban was extended to other Asians. So in other words, the B.C. government, where most of the uh, Asians came to live, and the federal government out and out discriminated in writing against this particular group of people. And it, it was popular enough. Uh, and we had no constitution at the time. We had no uh, charter um, of rights and freedoms. Um, that these bans lasted and came and had you know, prejudicial uh, um, laws lasted for 40 and 50 years, um, you know, uh, without the majority of the country complaining. Um, finally, in 1947, South Asians got the right to vote. So the Canadian government, as I think I explained in the previous class, had forbade uh, Native Indians, uh, Native uh, Indigenous people from voting. But there was a sort of a, we'll call it a flimsy ground of saying that these people were self governing and part of another nation uh, on their reserve. And therefore, because they were part of another nation, uh, in a way, apart from Canada, they didn't have the right to vote, which of course was a fiction. But uh, to pick out Asians, say, well, they can't vote. Whereas a, um, other immigrants, Ukrainians or Italians or Greeks, they could vote. This would be pure, um, you know, uh, racial prejudice on behalf of the federal government, supported by the majority of the population. Otherwise, they never would have done it, right? Um, in 1949, Japanese Canadians got the right to vote. So this is really, really quite, uh, you know, just to, just to give you a little brushy highlight of where, where this went um uh in um so now I'm going to go into a little bit more detail just to just to kind of highlight a few of the laws and acts that were passed and some of the uh attacks that these communities faced um there was in Canada something called the inspection of metal mines act in 1897 and in the inspection of metal mines act the inspection was to inspect, that Chinese and Japanese workers were not allowed to work in the mines. That was the inspection. So uh, this was brought about by the uh, labor union movement, which was, you know, in a way, very surprisingly anti-immigrant, because they felt the immigrants would take their jobs and work for lower wages and for worse conditions. And so um, in general, not always, but in general, uh, the labor union movement was very strongly anti-Asian. And um, they uh, supported this uh, inspection of mines act, which forbade Chinese and Japanese workers to working in mines. Um, in 1898, a law was passed saying that in BC, that Asians were not allowed to work in public in public works projects. Um, in 1907, there were anti-Asian riots in Vancouver and on the west coast of the United States. Um, still. Still, you know, and maybe because of this, um, in uh, in the early 1900s, um, the Chinese were 10 percent of the British Columbia population. So there were 16,000 Chinese in British Columbia um, at the time when there was 150,000 people in BC. The Chinese uh, generally worked in stores uh, uh, and on the railways, and the Japanese worked in fishing, and people from India worked in farming and in the uh, forestry industry. Um, to the, in, in 2011, the last said last official census, the Chinese were 15 percent of the British Columbia population. And in some cities like Richmond, the B.C., you know, a suburb of Vancouver, they're about half the population. And, uh, you know, the native uh, white people thought that these people were taking their jobs and were working for less and all this kind of prejudice. And um, other countries like Australia had passed the Exclusion Act in 1901. Um, the Asian Exclusion League started in Canada to ask for the same thing to ban immigrants from, you know the, uh, from Asia. And um, the uh, on the other hand, the large companies, like the railway companies, the CPR or the Grand Trunk Railway, they wanted these workers to come in because they wanted, you know, cheaper and, and uh, better labor than they could get, uh, you know, from local population. So they lobbied Canada to, to allow in 10,000 workers. In 1907, there was a riot in Bellingham, Washington, which is, you know, just over the border from uh, British Columbia. And refugees came to Canada, uh, you know, uh, uh, to escape with their lives. And... Um, uh, there were um, a riot in Vancouver at the same time, but um, there were no casualties, no real damage. And um, the, uh, however, the rioting led to, you know, governments passing laws against the um, Asian population because they said, well, if their presence is causing disturbances, we don't want them in the country. Um there was uh, an outbreak of bubonic plague in the early 1900s, and um, you know this is caused by um, mice and rats uh, um, harboring fleas, which then bite people, which then cause the plague. But the Asians were blamed for this plague, and they they ended up you know sort of isolating Asians and checking them uh, alone to make sure that they're not uh, you know passing plague on to other people. Um, uh, in Canada, the government in 1908, again, all this happens kind of at the turn of the century. They limited the number of uh, Japanese immigrants to Canada to 400 people, 400 men, later reduced to 150. So, you know, imagine that you had a well-established family in, in Canada, especially the Japanese community, british columbia were, were hard-working prosperous peace-loving people and all of a sudden you know their relatives are, are abroad they're not allowed to bring them in whereas you know in other uh immigrant communities uh as i say the ukrainians in in western canada or or british people in ontario uh you know could bring in anybody they want in order to uh In order to stop uh, Indian people from coming to Canada, Canada passed what they called the continuous journey regulation. Have any idea what that is? No, you know, what it said was that if you want to come to Canada by boat, of course, the only way you could come in those days was by boat, the boat was not allowed to stop anywhere. So you had to get on the boat and come directly to Canada. Well, if you were coming from India, that's that's halfway around the world and boats in those days you know this was not a uh, you know 63 day uh, cruise with uh, with uh, you know open bar so effectively that regulation stopped indians from coming and that was the whole purpose of it um uh in uh, we had a very famous case in 1914 of a boat with 400 um uh Indian people from India landed in Canada, was refused entry. The people stayed on the boat for two months, refusing to uh depart. Um finally the boat was sent back to India and many of the people were killed when they got back there because of uh they were Sikhs and these were anti-Sikh riots so that they were trying to escape from. So you know this does remind us of the St. Louis Uh, boat in uh, carrying Jewish refugees from Germany uh, in 1938, which was refused entry into American ports, um, you know, into Havana and, uh, you know, into Canada as well. So we have our own kind of distasteful history as far as refusing desperate refugees are concerned. And this is something, you know, you know, something more or less in the last 100 years. Um, in 1914, Ontario passed a law saying that Chinese men were not allowed to hire a white woman. This is clearly a prejudicial uh, rule to, to sort of assume that uh, Chinese men were going to somehow sexually um, uh, attack or induce a white woman. And uh, Saskatchewan and BC followed those laws with those laws and guess what the last of those type of laws was repealed in 1968 so it meant that if you were a storekeeper uh you weren't allowed to uh, to hire a white woman if you were uh let's say uh i don't know what uh you know a laundry owner uh they just didn't want they just thought it would be unseemly for a white woman to work for a chinese man um in Montreal, and I would have to check this again, maybe some of you could check this yourselves. You know, we had the so-called Spanish flu yeah. epidemic in, in 1918. It was the worst worldwide flu epidemic until COVID, uh, worse than COVID. And, uh, you know, to, to to tip my hat off to Mr. Trump, they called it the Spanish flu because it was brought to Spain by American soldiers. The flu actually originated in the United States, but I don't know why they don't call it the American flu, but they call it the Spanish flu. In any case, um, Chinese patients in Montreal were not allowed to go to so-called white hospitals. Um, I I would have to sort of—I don't know what hospitals they called white hospitals—but that's the that was some of the um, data or information that I was reading about in 1922 in Victoria they separated public schools into two groups so that Chinese students would not attend classes with white with white children. Um, and in 1923, there was the extension of the Chinese Immigration Act, uh, which banned almost all Chinese immigration starting in 1923. And it was passed on July the 1st, which in those days was called Dominion Day. And today it's called Humiliation Day by the Chinese because what it meant was, that families were separated in some cases forever. So the man came here from China to work, wanted to bring his wife and kids. And after 1923, the doors were 100% closed. Um, Now we move to the Second World War, of course. Uh, Japan attacked the United States. And very quickly in 1942, Canada passed the um, the Japanese internment uh, laws. They took 22,000 Japanese citizens, people who had lived in B.C. for generations, picked them up, sent them into um, internment camps in the uh, barrens of British Columbia or Alberta. And they seized their property. They seized their stores. Um, they, it was purely a prejudice, racial prejudice um, act because they never, um, you know, in 1939 they never seized German stores, they never seized Italian, uh, you know, uh, bakeries or anything like that. Um, so, it, you know, the 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 panic was that there might be spies among the Japanese, and of course this was done in the U.S. also, which we'll get to. But it was it was a racially motivated prejudice that made the Canadian government do it. And uh, Mackenzie King, uh, as I recall, was sort of reluctant or he, 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 he kind of sort of knew it was wrong, but he kind of went with the flow. And um, and uh, they enacted this uh, real, uh, you know, uh, uh, horrible act of discrimination, looting, and people's lives were affected forever by it, of course. Their educations were, were changed there livings were taken away. When they went back to their homes and their businesses, they found they were gone, stolen, trashed, um, etc. And they had to start from the beginning again. Um, and finally, I mean, in 1947, the Chinese the Chinese Act was re- repealed. Um, uh, and partly that was because of the service of Chinese soldiers in the Canadian Army. Um and, and, you know, starting in the 1960s, uh, the whole idea of um, having quotas by race and things was gone, and they introduced the point system. And at that point, um, immigration, especially from Asia, increased um, to the point where, the, of course, today, Asians are are, are part of the society, uh, are successful immigrants, are found in all walks of life. And... You know, in uh, politics and business and in education and sports and just about everything else. Um, in 2006, the Harper government uh, justifiably apologized to the Japanese community and they offered them a $20,000 compensation for their uh, losses, which, of course, you know, is a, it's a token amount. Um but it's actually, I believe, based on what the Americans did in the same, roughly the same time. Um, and uh, it was the apology that was more important than the money because uh, it told the rest of Canadians that the government had done a wrong thing and were, um, you know, were, were biased against uh, the Japanese, loyal Japanese population. There actually was never, there were never found any Japanese agents or spies um, in among the people in the camps uh, this was a you know a wild goose chase that was completely completely um uh you know unjustified uh however uh you know to to just go a little bit sideways uh, among germans living in canada and the us there were plenty of nazi uh, sympathizers um I, I certainly don't know if there were agents per se but there were uh, sympathizers who you know were hoping that Hitler would win the war and take over the world and then these people would become his agents but among the Japanese there were not that, those kind of uh, sort of um, uh, sympathies or actions with the imperial with the imperial regime in in, uh, in Japan um Today uh, there is um, certainly some anti-Asian uh, feeling in Canada associated with uh, the, the COVID uh, crisis, but it's not it's not nearly as bad as it is in the states. We've seen some anti-Asian um, uh, we'll call it uh, remarks um, you know in, in, in British Columbia the chinese are so concentrated in richmond bc and the signs are in chinese that the people were demanding that they put in a sort of a bill 101 for english saying that you know all chinese signs would have to have english on them but um you know politicians certainly did not want to get involved in in another language fight and that sort of dissipated um quebec has its anti turban law but it's not aimed specifically at Asians per se. It's more of an anti-Muslim law. But, the, you know, the Sikhs who have to wear turbans got caught up in it. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and today we see Jagmeet Singh, who's a, a, a Sikh, uh, who's the leader of a federal political party. Inside the government of Trudeau, you've had four or five different uh, Sikh ministers and, uh, you know, we've had Chinese ministers and uh, it's, um, you know, the Asian population as a whole have become quite successful. Uh, Just a word about that before I go into the States is that um, the uh, per capita income um, of Asian people, in other words, let's put it like this, put it differently. The top that the average income of the top 10% of Asians is higher than the the average income of the top 10% of whites in the US. However, the bottom 10% of Asians are poorer than the bottom 10% of whites. So in other words, um, among the Asian population themselves, there's quite a large uh, discrepancy or gap between the rich and the poor. You know, some have become very into the high-tech field, very successful scientists, very successful doctors, et cetera. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, on the bottom, there's still people who are are, um, at the bottom of the social scale uh, who, um, you know, have not succeeded to climb up. So uh, let me just check my time here. Okay. I'm going to now speak a bit about the United States a little more detail, but the same is just to highlight some of the kind of actions taken against Asians, but some of the same ideas as in Canada, Uh, the Chinese came to work on the railways. In 1854, California, the California Supreme court passed a law saying that Asians cannot testify against white in court against whites in court. Uh, So imagine, you know, how prejudicial that could have been. Um, And, you know, this uh, anti-Asian violence uh, took place uh, throughout the 1800s. You know, um, the uh, the um, they couldn't the Asians were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to be on juries. Many, many laws passed alien land laws which forbade non-citizens from buying real estate. And uh, of course, what that meant was, is that, um, you know, Asians couldn't get themselves established in, you know, in in owning their own homes and owning land and, you know, starting in that way. Uh, In 1875, there was the Page Act. The Page Act barred Oriental women from entering the United States for immoral purposes. Uh, in other words, what they said was, uh, they didn't want Asian women to come to the United States at all. And, um, you know, they said, well, you know, there are anti-Asian women who are working in in those, the equivalent of massage parlors in those days, brothels, let's say. And, uh, you know, some of them did. And uh, so they didn't want any Asian women at all coming into the US. And that's how they stopped it, by the Page Act of 1875, uh, there uh, there was a massacre in 1871, a Chinese massacre in Los Angeles, uh, where uh, 17 Chinese people were lynched, hung from a tree. Um, uh, There were eight men convicted of the crime, but the convictions were overturned. There were also anti-Chinese riots in Denver, Eureka, California, Tacoma, Seattle, where they were expelled and uh, you know, their homes were burnt and businesses taken over. Um, it was a pogrom, we would say that. And uh, it happened all throughout the Western United States because the Chinese were vulnerable. They were weak. They were just dis- not organized. They had no protection. Um, they were a visible minority. And, um, you know, they were, uh, when times got rough, um, they were easy prey, and uh, you know they they could not really defend themselves. Um, you know, for all kinds of reasons. You know, they were newcomers. They didn't. Some of them didn't speak the language. They had, They were not organized. They um, they they had all the weaknesses and none of the strengths. Let's put it like that. Yeah, just as in Canada, the U.S. passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned immigration for twenty years. Um, The law was vetoed by President Arthur, but then passed for 10 years and extended till 1943. So from 1882 to 1943, with very few exceptions, and there were some exceptions, uh, you know, for super wealthy people, for students, for, you know, friends of the government. um, Chinese people were not allowed to come to the United States. Uh, Of course, when the war broke out in the Second World War and China was an ally of the U.S., then this changed, um, and uh, Chinese were then allowed to come in. Um, the, uh, I'm going to read you a quote from uh, one of the writers who wrote in those days, talking about Chinese. Quote, these cheap slaves fill every place. Their dress is scant and cheap. Their food is from China. They live 20 to a room. Uh, they are mean um, uh, uh contribute nothing and obedient. Uh, and that's what uh this that's what this fellow wrote. and um, that was the attitude to uh, about about the uh, you know Ch- Chinese in particular. Um, here's another good prejudicial law in 1880 San, the city of San Francisco passed a law saying, that it's illegal to operate a laundry in a wooden building. And you'd ask yourself, you know, what what does operating a laundry have to do with a wooden building? Of course, 95% of the buildings in that time were wooden buildings. Remember, this is pre-earthquake 1906. So what they did was um, they declared 95% of all Chinese laundries to be illegal um, and said, well, if you wanted to operate a laundry in a wooden building, you had to apply for a permit. And uh, they didn't give out any permits to Chinese, but they gave out any kind of permits to non-Chinese. So, you know, uh, if, if people want to make the case that the U.S. was never a, um, you know, uh, prejudice against anyone except blacks, well, here you've got the um, proof otherwise. Um, the law of 1882 was the very first law in the United States which restricted immigration in any way, because up until then there were no restrictions. Uh, in 1885, there was a particularly gruesome massacre in Wyoming, the Rock Springs Mine, where 28 Chinese people were killed. Uh, their homes were burnt, um, and finally, federal troops had to be sent in to um, to, ta- to you know to bring order, and they stayed there for 13 years because they were so afraid of of, more anti-Chinese action. In 1879, the California constitution prohibited employment of Chinese by the state, by state and local governments. Uh, And they allowed the cities, if they wanted to remove Chinese people from their municipalities. Uh, Just like in uh, Canada, there was a plague in San Francisco. Uh, The ship actually came from Australia. And uh, a Chinese immigrant was the first victim, but the whole community was blamed. Police surrounded Chinatown, and they did not allow Chinese people in or out of Chinatown. The white people were allowed to come and go. So this is the first version of an accusation of Chinese bringing some kind of virus to the United States. And, you know, President Trump certainly um, did his part in calling the COVID the Kung Flu. and uh, uh in those days, uh you know, popular writings, you know like um, people who wrote serial stories and magazine articles were always talking about the yellow peril um of you know the u s being overrun by yellow people um the uh, the uh uh you know the war led to, in the Second World War, uh, led to the internment camps, the Japanese internment camps, where Japanese were rounded up. Men, women, and children uh, were rounded up. Often families were separated, and they were sent to internment camps in, uh, in Arizona or in uh, eastern California or in Nevada, basically in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they had um, They were surrounded by guards, surrounded by fences, it was like, like, we'll call it a concentration camp light. And um, uh, people had to spend uh, five years, up to five years there. So, um, you know, and I was just listening. You might have seen this George Takei, who was the, uh, was a film star who said, you know, he grew up in one of these places and he remembers, you know, pledging, um, you know, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance with liberty and justice for all inside of these uh, internment camps and um, you know by and large not everybody but most people didn't lose hope went back to their lives after the they were released and um, and the um, U.S. government again apologized and gave twenty thousand dollars to the um, uh, people who survivors who were you know who were stuck in those camps um the uh again of course their their businesses were taken away and vandalized um in 1988 there was a presidential apology so that was a lot before a lot before um uh, Harper's apology and twenty thousand dollars were given as compensation um uh and um you know that was that um other other um, anti-Asian sort of demonstrations, we had in the 1980s, there was this, uh, uh, as a result of the Vietnam War, you, I'm sure you know that many Vietnamese came to live in the US after, after the collapse of Saigon in 1975. And many uh, Vietnamese people established themselves as shrimp boat um, owners and operators on the Gulf of Mexico. And the local Texan uh, you know, shrimp boat people resented them. They said they worked too hard and they ended up burning their boats and demonstrating against them. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan got involved uh, because of competition you know, that these people were giving and the Vietnamese never gave up. They just said, listen, we're here and we're, we're allowed to do it. And they kept on doing it. Um, uh, Koreans often ended up owning businesses in poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. And um, when the riots happened, the riots, um, you know, in the sixties and especially in the the nineties, you know, many Korean businesses in black areas were, were vandalized and, uh, and hit uh, in that way. Um, So um, anti-Asian prejudice is not a, something which is only, um, uh, we'll say, carried out by white people in the U.S., but many black people uh, have uh, participated in anti-Asian um, actions, uh, you know, especially where they feel that the businesses in their neighborhoods are being run and owned by Asians who, um, you know, work from dawn to dusk, uh, who don't share the same social values as the black people community and these people are resented um, you know by the by the majority black community and sometimes it involves you know vandalizing their stores or shoplifting or you know carrying out other antisocial activities against them so what's uh, so so there you've got a summary uh, pretty well a sh- kind of very shorthanded summary we'll call it of um, anti-Asian pressures in Canada and the U.S. Uh, in both countries, the Chinese population is the largest single uh, group of Asian, Asian origin in the country, in both countries. Um, but other, other uh, groups like Japanese are strongly represented in some places, like in Hawaii especially, uh, and in California. Today, California has 6 million people of Asian descent. So that means that they are about 15% of the total population of California. And uh, as in Canada, they have worked their way up the ladder. They are found in a higher level um, of uh, government, uh, certainly in a in, in high-tech field in Silicon Valley. Uh, there are several Asians, you know, who own some of these high or who are, who are the CEOs of the high-tech companies. People of Indian descent, especially, um, are involved in that. And um, they've kind of made their way individually in American society. But it's only now at this point where, in a certain way, the whole groups of people are being attacked, that they, they have to see themselves or they want to see themselves, or some want to see themselves, as belonging to a kind of a collective. And they have to take collection active, collective action in order to protect uh, their vulnerable members of the population from being physically attacked, um, to protect their businesses from being vandalized or spray painted. Um, and in general, to tell American society that they're here, they're not going anywhere, they belong um and uh, you know I saw an interview with lisa ling who's a famous uh, journalist who said you know she's 100 percent chinese and all she wanted to do was fit in as a teenager in her high school she never been to China she never learned chinese she you know have, has no Chinese connection whatsoever and yet she was always made to be teased and made to feel foreign because of how she looked and it was a it's a hard time you know to put yourself in In in, in these people's shoes, it's it's an an additional um, obstacle to overcome, and especially uh, vulnerable teenagers are are are, you know in a way particularly affected by this. Um, And in you know in the earlier generations, um, uh, this sort of Americanized generation would in a way look down upon their parents for being so foreign uh, and maybe speaking with an accent or maybe you know eating only uh, their traditional food um and you know resenting you know getting a box of uh, a box of noodles for uh, lunch instead of getting a uh, you know cheese sandwich or peanut butter sandwich and um you know it's only later in life that these people come to realize the sacrifices that their parents made the the wealth of um the wealth of their cultures the the wealth of history that they brought with them and uh, then they regret not having learned, you know, their parents' languages or listened to their stories or, or you know, uh, connected with the past. And, you know, this is pretty well uh, the, 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 the road of many immigrants in that same, in the same, uh, you know, who've immigrated in the same way from different parts of the world, uh, only uh, that in people who are of Asian origin, uh, as opposed to people who are white or black uh, their sort of foreign origin sticks out all the time and uh, you know people will you know come and say well you speak good English uh, well, you know where are you from and you know these people I and mean, is certainly in the case of the Japanese they've been you know in the U.S. or in Canada since the 1800s so um, you know it, it's it's a never-ending battle because their their faces and features uh, will always be the same, um, and uh, um, you know that's uh, just uh, just that's how it is. I'm um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to see if you've got any questions or comments before we can. Um, uh, uh change to uh, to see what other uh, what other subjects are are on tap. today of course is the Israeli election that I spoke about last time um and um you know uh let's uh let's uh le- let's hear what you know if you've got any experiences about things that I've said or any questions about it um just let me know.
2: Uh, hi, um, Mr. Dwoskin. So, yeah. uh, there's one comment about uh, Well, there's one comment and one raised hand. So Toby is writing. The actor who was in the internment camp is George Takei, who played yeah. Doctor Sulu on Star
1: Trek. Okay, I what did I say? George Takei. I said. I thought I said George Takei, but I don't remember what he was on. He was on. Yeah, he
2: was on Star Trek.
1: Star Trek. Okay, and he was interviewed yesterday. Um I saw him on TV yesterday he's he's 84 years old today um and uh, he was talking about his childhood in the internment camps um and uh he, you know that uh, the parents who were with these children tried to make their lives as normal as possible and um uh you know they didn't um Uh, try to, uh, we'll say, rebel or break out of these camps. Um, And, um, you know, they were trying to not call much attention to each other. One of the things that people in the camps did, though, was some of them were able to travel from one camp to another. And so in that way, uh, they were in some cases able to reunite families by... um, you know by finding out what camps their children were in and then going to those camps themselves uh getting a pass to go to those camps and uh in that way they could reunite the families who were sort of picked up and scattered you know you, you know the the crisis on the u.s border now we can speak about that in a second but where children are just kind of picked up and sent any old place and they didn't really know or keep good records and there were no computers in those days and they just pick people up and put them on trucks. And that was that. I mean, if, if the father of the family was away on a fishing trip and he came back home and like his family's gone and then they picked him up and sent him somewhere and they, you know, didn't know all where all the rest of the families were. So it took, it took some time to try to sort these things out and to try in many cases to get the families, um, uh uh, reunited. Also, as time went on in these camps, uh, the, the strict conditions of, of isolation and of um, of a, a sort of internment got a bit lighter, a bit looser, and people were allowed to move around a little bit more. Um, and some people were able to get jobs outside of the camps. And, um, you know, uh, and just the inertia of things and the way the way things went, uh, you know, they didn't pose any threats to the government. And um after a while, um, you know, things things did calm down a little bit more than they were at the beginning. Um okay, what what's the other um what is the other um question?
2: So I'm gonna just ask Aviva, please unmute yourself and ask your question to uh Mr. Dwaskin. Yeah. Aviva please unmute uh, yourself.
1: Or you could type it in, you know, in chat.
2: Aviva please unmute yourself to ask your question.
1: Yeah, at the top at the top of the um At the top of your iPad, if you're using an iPad, it says mute, unmute. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we can hear you. Okay, I didn't want to ask about the Chinese situation. I just wanted to know if you have any information about the results of the uh, Israeli election. Uh, The polls close in Israel at 10 p.m. Israeli time. So that comes to, I think, 3 p.m. our time. Um, And um, so I don't have any results. Uh, And also, as as I said before, Israeli elections are in a certain way complicated because the election doesn't actually happen in one day. It sort of happens in two months, meaning that um, because of the system of proportional representation, no party winning a majority, uh, it takes a lot of negotiation and bargaining for a government to be established. Uh, Since there's 120 seats in Israel, you need 61 seats to form a government. And sometimes you can get, as happened recently, you can get 57, you can get 56, you can get 58, you can get 59, you can even get 60, which is what Mr. Netanyahu had one of the three times, but you can't get 61. And without 61, you're kind of, you know, walking on thin air. Um mm-hmm. Now, the reason why it's so hard to get that number is because although the piece, pieces of the puzzle are all there to be assembled, the problem is that some pieces will join the government only on condition that other pieces don't join the government or that uh, two different pieces will want to join the government on condition that each piece gets to be defense minister or each piece gets to be foreign minister or each party gets to be finance minister and you can't give two um, you can't give one job to two people and so because of that coalition uh, negotiations just take longer and longer and longer and that's why it's normal to say that Israel really has two elections uh, the voting election and then the forming of the government election. the first one takes one day the second one could take two months and uh, has taken two months so that's why um, uh, that's why um, you know that's the way things are but I will say this that as in other elections uh this election even the more so the trend always is to the right of uh, the right of Israeli politics because uh, of many reasons one reason is that people who answer polls just like just like in the, just like in the American elections, right-wing people don't answer polls. Uh, And therefore, um, you know, people who are liberal or left-wing are more anxious to give their opinion to pollsters than right-wing people are. And so right-wing people are often undercounted. But even more nefarious is that in previous election campaigns, the right wing parties instructed their sort of followers if you ever get called by a pollster, tell them you're voting for the left. Um, and that way, the left uh, are overrepresented in polls in order to motivate right wing uh, voters to go to the poll so that the left doesn't win. And this has happened also in past elections. Um, so, inevitably, if you check the polls of this, maybe. Eight different, eight previous elections in Israel, the right wing always did better than the last polls indicate. That's point number one. Point number two: the Arab vote uh, uh, last time reached the summit of um, somewhere like a 65 percent or 70 percent turnout in the election to vote for a unified Arab slate, and this time the Arab slate broke down. And already, um, you know, cameras and pictures are showing that the Arabs are not turning out to vote. So what that means, of course, is that there, there, almost no Arabs will vote for the right wing. So by definition, then the right wing will gain because of the non-voting pattern of the Arab population who are, you know, 21%. So it means that, you know, uh, it looks to me at this point anyway, that a combination of ultra right wing parties, religious parties, And the Netanyahu's Likud party might just scrape over the 61 uh, seats needed to form a government. Mm -hmm. But of course, it will not be a stable government because 61 is not the most stable in the world. Um, But that's what, you know, to my uh, guesstimation, that's kind of what things are going to end up looking like. It wouldn't surprise me that the, um, you know, the right will be able to get even up to 65 uh, seats in the government this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to mention, you know, I I spoke to you last time about the Israeli election system saying that there's a uh, 3.25% barrier to get elected, that anyone who doesn't get that amount of votes doesn't, their votes completely get tossed in the garbage can and they just count the rest of the votes and then divide them up. So Holland just had an election last week and they use in part the same system as Israel Except they don't have their barrier is, is eight tenths of a percent of um, they have 150 seats in the, in the parliament, and so if you to get one seat, you need eight tenths of one percent of the vote, and um, you know, uh, there's parties that can get one seat, and therefore, for sure, they have no majority government. Uh, the biggest party got 33 seats out of 150. And the Israeli elections this time, the biggest party will get about thirty out of one hundred and twenty. So it's kind of, um, you know, they're they're sort of fishing in the same waters. We'll put it like that. But many different parties running, and you know, somewhere thirteen different parties getting elected to to each um, each parliament and having to make a government out of those out of that uh, that mix. It's not an easy not an easy. Uh, Thing to do, and, and you know, that's why they've had four elections in two years because no government has been able to last. Um, you know, and as I've said before, it's like it's in it, it, it's only one half good, and uh, if they were only able to incorporate a district system of voting along with a proportional system, that would be the most uh fair, uh, and also. Have the tendency to encourage larger political parties and not a bunch of small ones. So, uh, you know, we'll see what the election results will bring. But my prediction is Netanyahu wins again, because he's such a master politician, a survivor. Um, and, um, you know, uh, he's he's really good at what he does. Um, thank you, thank you very okay. much. Okay, you're welcome. Anyone else? I don't see any more uh, okay questions. I'm ju- I'm just going to just briefly talk about the um, we'll call it the first crisis of the American administration, and it's about immigration. And um, uh, the uh, crisis is that there is a there is a huge flow of um, illegal immigrants, we'll call them. Over the Mexican border into the US. Um, and these immigrants are by and large coming from Central America, meaning uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, uh, three of the worst run, poorest countries, most violent, most dangerous, most gang infested uh, countries in, in, um, in the world, in a, in a sense. And um, these people, many of them walked walked on their two feet all the way from El Salvador to Texas uh, over a period of months. Now, the Trump uh, administration, as you know, refused entry to anybody. So these people were sort of camping along the border waiting for their turn to come in. And once Biden uh, was elected, uh, they felt well now that they'd receive a more uh, uh, welcoming reception. And they've been crossing over by the hundreds and thousands of people, uh, some of whom are under uh, single uh, people under 18, some of whom are families, um, many of whom have paid their life savings uh, to, um, we'll call them agents or call them coyotes or call them uh, smugglers to get them into the United States. Uh, this is a, certainly a political embarrassment for the Biden administration, and it's a crisis, although they don't want to admit it. Um, Trump made very strong uh, uh, support in saying, I'm keeping America safe by keeping all these people out. Now, you know, he could have been referring to COVID, which he was never worried about, Um mm-hmm. But he uh, drummed up prejudice against immigrants in the same way as the Americans and Canadians drummed up prejudice against um, the Chinese and Asians in in the 1800s and the 1900s. It's the same idea that these people are coming to take your jobs, they're coming to work for nothing. Or, or not or, but at the same time, as they're, they're such hard workers, At the same time as they're hard workers taking your jobs, they're also lazy people who don't want to work and just take welfare. So they get accused of two separate things at the same time. I just happened to have a conversation with a woman today at the gym about, uh, you know, she was telling me that exact same thing. Why should they work if they're getting money? And, um, uh, you know, so they they can't be both hardworking people taking away other people's jobs, willing to work for no money and at the same time, not wanting to work at all and just sitting at home and taking the taxpayers' dollars. But both the stories are being put out at the same time in order to, of course, increase prejudice against these people. Um, In terms of numbers, the numbers that are coming over are not as high as they were at the peaks of um, South American or, or Central American immigration to the U.S., but they certainly are a crisis in that they can't all be dealt with uh, expeditiously all at the same time. The strategy of the gov- Biden government is to get these people find their relatives in the U.S. to hand them over to the relatives with the conditions, uh, you know, that they have to appear in court, uh, that they're, you know, not allowed to, you know, do certain things. They might have a curfew. There might be all kinds of restrictions on them. But the idea is that they don't want to be under the lock and key of the border services in the US. And um, it's not always easy to find relatives or there may not be, there may not be any relatives. On the other hand, um, uh, children who are under 18 years old are a special responsibility of the government uh, because the government becomes their wards. And I should say, they become wards of the government. And um, these people have to be treated you know, the way, um, parents would treat their, their own children, and it's difficult to do that in conditions where there's just so many that come over all at the same time. So you've seen pictures on the news of them sleeping in these awful cages and things like that. And um, the Biden government has been criticized on the left for, for being heartless, uh, for being cruel, for being the same as Trump towards these people. And they're being criticized on the right for, for you know, not blocking them at the border and not sending them back right away, and and making an example of them. Because the criticism is, of course, is that if they allow these people in and give them some shelter and some hope, it'll just encourage more people to try to leave their homelands and to cross through Mexico and to come into the the U.S. that way. Uh, You know, the Biden government knows it's a long-term strategy to... Uh, pay those countries to keep their people there and by pay their countries i mean to um, invest in those countries to offer jobs to the people to somehow get good government going to eliminate corruption to eliminate violence uh it's not the american's job to run guatemala or el salvador and yet um if these countries are are failed states then the people who are the most vulnerable are going to leave and they're going to end up coming to the states because they have family in the states because the United States is the most uh well-off and successful country uh, nearest to uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras um and those are and 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 you know the passage to go through Mexico to get there is not uh it's hard but it's not um, impossible so this is really a conundrum for the biden administration and um, especially because the democratic party is divided on this particular issue and i saw mr mayorkas the uh the secretary of um of immigration and uh, he kind of looked <laughs> on tv yesterday he he kind of looked like like a deer caught in the headlights, I would say. And um, so this is uh, an ongoing crisis. This is, I would say, the very first, um, we'll call it, uh, original crisis that the Biden uh, administration is facing. You know, the COVID crisis is, a, is an inherited one. And the immigration crisis, in a certain way, is an original one because Trump had pretty well sealed everything off at the border. So, uh, we'll have to see where this uh, goes. And of course, the TV loves images. They love live TV. They love dramatic shots of children hugging teddy bears. Uh, uh, you know, this is a perfect made for TV kind of crisis in a certain sense. So, um, you know, it's something to follow. And, and I, I think on, upon reflection, um, um, you know, even if a person has a kind of we'll call it an open and liberal way of approaching life, uh, we in Canada are a bit smug because we don't have any countries touching us by land except for the United States, and therefore there is no kind of wave of people coming over to Canada in, in the same way as there are waves of people coming into the U.S. And you know, if we shared a border with uh, Mexico. Uh, or if we shared a border, a land border with Russia um, and people were coming walking over the border, I'm sure we would be uh, quickly, uh, you know, quickly have to deal with the same problems as they have to deal with. Uh, One thing that has been proven for the U.S. is that there is no huge um, rush of Canadians walking over the border into the U.S., uh, there are a considerable number of Canadians who are in the U.S. illegally um, by overstaying their visas, but these people never seem to be a priority for the uh, ICE, for the Immigration Control, um, uh, Immigration Control. What's it called, ICE? Immigration Control. Mm, I forgot what it stands for. Immigration Control. Something. Immigration Customs Enforcement. That's what it is. Immigration Customs Enforcement. So. Um, uh, you know, they don't seem to concentrate on Canada, on us, but they certainly are there along the U.S. border with Mexico in, in big numbers. And, you know, sometimes the agents themselves feel as if they have no backing or no support when they see that the, um, the Biden administration is not uh, acting with a, with a strong hand. So they, they were big supporters of the Trump uh, administration. Because they felt Trump had their backs and now is if they're trying to fight a lonely battle all by themselves. So this is you know, this is a kind of a long- term problem. And I do agree that um, you know only by eliminating the reasons that people immigrate uh, is a long- term solution. So you know, but this is something that will take lots of time. Uh, any Any um, comments about this, any, uh, comments about this. Let me just say, let me just add that we in Canada are fortunate that there is a strong consensus between our three main political parties that immigration as a whole is good for the country. And there's almost no c- countries in the world that have that consensus. Um, and we have been uh, consistently. Uh, accepting, um, uh, you know, our goal was to reach 1% of the population, which, you know, would be about 370,000 immigrants a year for sure because of COVID and because of all those restrictions We're nowhere near there in 2020. But I think we got up to about 325,000 at the top. And then we said we would take in 50,000 refugees, uh, you know, as, as, as allocated by the United Nations, and that's on top of that. And, um, you know, there hasn't been any really strong opposition to these um, actions. And I think this is wonderful. Um, And that's partly because not all the immigrants are coming from one place. They're not all going to live in one city um that they prove to be overall uh, contributors to society in relatively short time um there isn't a kind of a concentration of crime or drug use or any other antisocial behaviors that that you might find among uh you know a specific community and um you know that even in Quebec which is the most kind of inward looking and the most protective and defensive um province, um, there is still, by and large, now, and this is only, I would say, since maybe even since 25 years, a kind of an opening towards immigration, Um, and the main reason for this is because the immigrants have been forced to go to French schools, uh, that their children become completely assimilated, become friends with the native uh, Quebecois. Uh, their intermarriage happens over, the, over time. And they see that immigrants are not kind of a foreign threat waiting to take over Quebec or waiting to turn Quebec English or or anything like that. And um, so, uh, you know, that, that has led a lot to the acceptance of immigration in Quebec. And, uh, you know, the Quebec Solidarity Party is proof of that. If you look at their candidates, you know, a separatist party, there are plenty of... Uh, Non Quebecois candidates and voters. So, yeah, that's it. Um, uh, if you have any other comments, questions, let me know. And if you don't, I thank you so much for listening. And, um, you know, uh, we'll see what's on tap for next week. And I also want to wish everybody listening a happy Passover um, under these very, very difficult circumstances. Families can't uh, get together. It's it, it's very hard. It's hard for me and us. It's it's hard on everybody. Where are you situated? Where am I situated? Yeah. In uh, Hillsborough Beach, Florida. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I said if I have to be stuck, uh, stuck alone, not alone, but I mean stuck, you know, uh, in one place, I might as well be. Uh, stuck in Florida where I can be on my bike, I could be running, I could be swimming every day uh, rather than be at home where I can't bike and I can't run and I can't swim. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if, you know, many of you know me, but many of you don't, but um, I am a fitness fitness person, uh, you know, beside reading all the time I'm exercising all the time. And that's pretty well all I do between those two things. So, you know, that's it.
2: I have a question for you, Mr. Dwoskin. Yeah. Uh, I know there's been uh, a lot of talk about uh, the borders being closed, but have you heard anything lately of people crossing over from the U.S. to Canada through the Roxham Trail? Because I know they talk about COVID and stuff like that. but Roxham Road.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, That's a different thing. Uh yes I know what you're talking about. Uh so Roxham Road is the name of a road uh in um <clears throat> the uh the town of Champlain New York. So it's it's right on it's right on the um American Canadian border. Um it's it's to the west of Rouses Point and uh, on the US Canadian border in in the uh area of um uh, we'll call it between Hemingford and La if you on the southern Quebec side. And what happens is that uh, people who want to, people who who are not accepted in the U.S., people who have arrived in the U.S. illegally, who have not been able to establish their status in the United States, and who are who are afraid that the U.S. immigration will pick them up and put them on a plane back to Syria or back to uh, who knows where, that these people say, okay, you know, my next choice is to try to cross into Canada. Now, the United States and Canada have an agreement um, and that agreement is uh, uh, says that a refugee, somebody who applies for refugee status must apply in the first country that they come to, okay? So in other words, you can't say, okay, I'm gonna somehow take a boat to the United States, get off the boat, run to Canada and apply for refugee status in Canada. That's not allowed and vice versa is not allowed. Um, and it's not just US and Canada, but it's uh, in a way, in a way um, the whole sort of civilized world has come to make this sort of an agreement. And I can't remember the exact title of this of this uh, of this agreement, but it's kind of the first place your foot touches. That's where you have to apply. Now, what that means is that if a refugee goes up to the Canadian border on the 87, uh, the road between Plattsburgh and Montreal and comes to the border and says, I want to apply for refugee status in Canada, The customs will turn them around and say, you can't, you're not admitted to Canada because you are a refugee in the United States and you have to apply for refugee status in the United States. Now, if you are an American citizen, that's another story. You can say, I'm an American citizen. I'm afraid that the government is gonna put me in jail for no good reasons. And I wanna apply for refugee status in Canada, they will let you in. But if you're not an American, and you have no status inside of Canada of the US like a green card then they say they'll turn you around and say no by by the United Nations regulation of uh, refugees uh, you must apply in the country you arrive in okay now but the, the the weird exception to that is that if you don't cross at an approved border crossing it's different So if you just walk into Canada, any any old place, they can't turn you around, in a sense, because there's nobody there to turn you around. So um, you then uh, have to be uh, processed uh, in a center like Montreal or Ottawa or somewhere else, Winnipeg, uh, and wait for your turn until they decide what to do with you. And uh, the hope for these people is, is that if we can somehow find work and somehow make a contribution or get our relatives or get get some sort of a a campaign going to uh, help us, um, then we might get status. And the COVID um, pandemic was a good way to do it because these people said, look, we're willing to work in hospitals. We're willing to do anything. Just give us a chance. And, you know, at a certain point, the Quebec government, like, they, they would have taken, you know, the rats out of the sewers to work in the hospitals because they had no one else. And um, so some of these people said, look, we've contributed. Now, please give us our status. And, you know, Quebec, of course, is very reluctant because they're always afraid of opening the door. But I think in, in some cases, they did give them status that way. So that's what Roxham Road is. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a means. It's an illegal means of entering canada from the united states that's what it is i just want to say that uh, i enjoy your um your talks every tuesday and i look forward to them thank so oh, I'm, you- so I'm so happy i'm so happy that you said that because um uh you know it's uh it's uh it, it's nice for me to know that there is a there is, um, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, people out there and, you know, I can't see you, unfortunately, the way this setup is. And, um, you know, uh, I I just can't wait to be back at the uh, library and, you know, just sort of see everybody in person and give you all hugs and waves and everything else. Uh, because it's been hard. It's, it's hard. This It's hard, but it's um you know, it's coming to an end. At least we can see you know light light around the corner or light on the horizon. And uh, you know, I, I saw that Canada is now up to close to 10% uh, having received one shot. In the US, uh, it's now around 25% have received one shot. So I think the worst is behind us. Um, so anyway, thank you all for tuning in. And Angela, thank you so much for hosting as always. And I'll see you, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I won't see you, but I, I'll i be here next week for you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.